Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jenikin. Let's start out the show by thanking our lovely Patreon contributors. They donated over at patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene, where they now have access to over a hundred different shows of bonus material. Wow. And we're gonna be uploading some new stuff pretty soon. Yeah. We usually get it get it all in by the end of the month. So that's yeah. when you can look forward to new stuff. This week we had Jillian, Marissa, Brad, Carlos, Trisha, Chris, Cynthia, Rochelle, Christina, Michelle, Holly, Annie, Reed, Kaeli, Shelby, Katie, and Sammy. Thanks, guys. Thank you guys so much. Okay. So this has been a long time coming a lot of people have asked for this case. It's one of my favorite wild stories. And you know I love stories involving super rich freaks. So today we are finally getting to the kidnapping of Patty Hearst, who many of you know as the granddaughter of William Randolph Hearst, and I'm sure we'll be doing more episodes on that freak. Uh, <laughs> Uh, she basically became a household name in 1974 when she was kidnapped. And then she also got a second life as an actress, most notably in John Waters flicks, including my favorite, um, maybe one of my favorite movies of all time, Serial Mom. That's right. I fucking love that movie. And she's in a movie with Brendan. Uh, Pecker. Pecker. Yeah, she's in a bunch of them. So in that movie, she's beaten to death by Kathleen Turner for wearing white after Labor Day. Classic. Classic. It's such a good scene. Uh, I think she gets beat with a shoe, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like while the person, while Kathleen Turner's on trial, she like murders her, right? Because they're in the courthouse. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I haven't seen it in a she while. She snaps when she sees her shoes. Uh, yeah. So it's a really funny movie. Um, I love it. So I mostly um, used one book for this, uh, the research for this case, and that is by Jeffrey Tubin. The book is called American Heiress, The Wild Saga of the Kidnapping Crimes and Trial of Patty Hearst. It's a pretty detailed book. Uh, let's get to it. So Patty Hearst was born Patricia Hearst in San Francisco on February 20th, 1954. She was the third of five daughters of Randolph Apperson Hearst and Catherine Wood Campbell. She grew up in Hillsborough, which is in San Mateo, yeah. just south of San Francisco. Very wealthy community. Very wealthy. It was recently ranked the fifth richest city in America by Forbes magazine. I've been to that area. I, I used to know someone who lived in San Mateo. It's very snooty. Yes. I mean, yeah. So Patricia was often thought of as kind of the high-spirited daughter, the rebel. And one detail I found was that she was disciplined by their governess for this um, wild behavior with a hairbrush. Their governess? Yeah, they had a governess. What the fuck is a governess? <laughs> They're really rich, Rachel. <laughs> That's, They're very that rich. That is like some really rich people shit. It's very rich. Is that like a butler? What is that? It's like a nanny, basically. But they're called a governess. Yeah, they might be a teacher slash nanny. I don't know if there's like an official governess title, or they were just like, let's say governess to be extra snooty. Oh my God. <laughs> um. So her mom is really uptight and Catholic. She sends her daughters to Catholic school, and basically all the daughters sort of rebel against this Catholic 
uh, school lifestyle, but Patty is definitely the worst or the best, I guess, depending on how you look at it. I would say the best. Part yeah, the, I would say the best part of the Catholic school lifestyle is the outfits because those are cute. Those are really cute. As a little Jewish girl, I was sad I didn't get to wear them. I wanted knee socks so bad I couldn't even stand it. I like, wanted saddle shoes. Yeah, the whole look is great. We know it's hot. Uh, so the one story Patty told was that she would always see nuns like sort of yelling in students' faces. Like that would be their thing. Just go right up to your face and like yell at you in a nun way, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's scoldy. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, and she's like, everyone lived in fear of them. And one day when the, the nun was yelling in her face, she looked at the nun and she said, oh, go to hell. And the nun shut right up. (laughs) So that was her big like moment. I think that's a hot moment. That's a hot move. And something you probably could only get away with when your parents are the hearse. Right. Very rich. So the mom like wouldn't even let them wear blue jeans. And she was a huge supporter of Ronald Reagan. The mom was. (laughs) Yes. So the dad is a bit looser. um, And he was sort of like in love with Patricia. Like that was his favorite child. Most people would say he liked her spirit. He was sort of a drinker and he ran the San Francisco Examiner, uh, which was, you know, owned by his father. Um, But it was kind of in name only. He didn't like go to the office. He was just sort of on the masthead. He was a man of leisure, Rachel. He enjoyed duck hunting and tennis, (laughs) just sort of rich people activities. Um, he had a really old fashioned vibe. And one of my favorite details was he used to call loose women, Sally Roundhills. <laughs> How did I call you that now? I was like, I never heard that, but it's actually kind of cute. Like, <laughs> so I get the feeling he might've liked loose women because that's course. an adorable nickname. Now, Patricia described them politically as my dad is a registered Republican who always votes Democrat and my mom is a registered Democrat who always votes Republican. So she eventually leaves Catholic school and attends Crystal Springs School for Girls, which is kind of like a finishing school that prepares rich girls for marriage. Like, obviously, this is a pretty outdated concept by the time Patricia is there um, in like the early 70s, especially like to still be kind of having that mentality. Finishing school. It's already dated. Like it was dated from the minute it was existent, like right. preparing girls for, for marriage. Like, come on. Uh, but yeah, so this is like finishing school in the early 70s, San Francisco. Patricia's like, no. Now it's here that she meets Stephen Weed, the most 70s name ever. <laughs> That's the name of a teacher. His name was Stephen Weed. Stephen Weed. Weed. <laughs> it's like, it's like not a it's like a placeholder name you give a character in your book about Marin in the 70s. Oh my god. It's such a funny name to me. Like I literally was cracking up every time I had to write Stephen Weed. Um so he is a teacher. He comes to the Crystal Springs School for Girls. He's 23 years old and he's the hot fucking teacher that all the girls want to fuck. Like he has a mustache. <laughs> He has like a cool car, like a Volkswagen. I don't know what he has. Um, And Patricia like immediately is like, I'm going to make that guy mine. Like she wants this fucking guy. Uh, So she begins going to his home for extra tutoring and they're pretty much fucking soon after. She's 17 years old. Whoa. So her mom is obviously livid when a Patricia announces she's moving in with Stephen <laughs> and that they're both going to attend UC Berkeley together. 
Um, they kind of start accepting him, but the mother gives him a razor as a gift because she hates his mustache so much. Like she cannot stand it. So one interesting tidbit that I came across is that Patricia and Stephen would go to these boring family dinners, like at the mansion in Hillsborough. And Stephen kind of liked being in that world a bit. Uh, but, but Patricia was literally like bored as fuck <laughs> all of these meals, but she would go with Stephen. And the only time she ever perked up at a dinner was when Stephen brought one of his grad student friends, Errol Morris, the <gasps> film director, oh documentary God. director. So uh, according to Patricia, she perked up at this, this dinner because Errol had just gotten back from Wisconsin after interviewing Ed Gein. No way. Yeah. So all of a sudden Patricia's like, tell me more. <laughs> it was like the first dinner that she got excited during. She's like a total true crime bitch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I just love picturing this like bored teenager like, wait. <laughs> like I feel like I've had that moment in my life when someone tells something interesting and you're fucking bored. It's like this lifeline. Like, So yeah, I guess he was working on some kind of film. I didn't get a chance to look into it. Uh, but I thought that was pretty funny. Now, despite all of her rebellious ways, uh, Patricia is a girl who wants to get married and she wants to marry Stephen. Like she does want to be married. Um, she definitely badgers him about getting married or getting engaged. I mean, she's seven, 17, 18. I think that's a pretty common thing when you first start dating. Like you think it's like going to end that way. I don't know. I wasn't ever that girl. So I've heard. Now in Christmas of 1973, Stephen gives her a present. Her present for Christmas that year is a pair of moccasins and a piece of paper that says ring on it. Come on. (laughs) And that he says is a promissory note for her. Sorry. Come on. That is the lamest (laughs) pippy bullshit. (laughs) Can you imagine opening that piece of paper up and seeing ring on it? It's so dumb. I mean, at least get a placeholder ring. I mean, it's so lame. I can't even. She's like, don't worry, I'll pay for it. Probably. <laughs> uh, so she tells Patricia's, Patricia tells her mom that she's engaged. Now, Patricia's mom is thrilled because this will make this living in sin thing way less. She places out a huge full page ad announcing Patricia and Steven's engagement. Uh, so yeah, she's into it. Now, uh, they're living together in Berkeley and Patricia at this point is really embracing this housewife role. She like cooks and cleans. Uh, she decorates the house this is like such a rich kid thing to me. I don't know if you've ever experienced this where they kind of inherit all this like antiques and knickknacks and their apartment is decorated like someone way too old. Cause they have like their grandma's dresser or oh, right. Like, right. And it can be cool. Cause that stuff looks cool, but sometimes it's like a little too much. There's like none of their own style. So her house looks like an elderly woman lives there. It's all like antiques, like not very hippie Berkeley. She has like knickknacks literally everywhere, like bunnies and like, just like jumps. So her mom gave her like these Catholic crosses to hang up. So it's just like this mess of an apartment. Steven does literally nothing. He goes to school and she does fucking everything, including going to school. Patricia will later say during this period that she was mildly suicidal. And honestly, when I heard that, I was like, yeah, it sounds like a bad situation. So like, she's literally still in high school at this point. Well, she's taking classes at Berkeley now. She's, so she's 18 now. Okay, so she's graduated yeah, high she's school. graduated okay. high school. But it started when she was 17. Right. Um, so now... 
despite what you might think, like the Hearst family is obviously one of the richest families in America and just very well known. There, this particular lineage or this father was not really a big media hound. They weren't as famous or well known. They kind of laid low. So uh, they didn't have any type of security or personal security. Like they didn't deal with that kind of stuff. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. So on February 4th, 1974, Patricia and Steven are just hanging out in their Berkeley apartment. Patricia made dinner. You know I had to find out what. They had chicken soup and tuna sandwiches for dinner, which is so, it's so sad because it's like you don't know how to cook. Like I know that those tuna sandwiches were very basic and it was probably canned chicken soup, but that was like the type of food she was making, like, which is so sweet and cute. She's a little young homemaker. She's a little young homemaker. So they had their dinner and then they watched Mission Impossible and then they were on their sofa together doing their school school work, which was like a typical evening for them. These are not like party college students at all. At about 9.17 p.m., the doorbell rings. The couple weren't expecting anyone, but it was Berkeley, and it was like not completely out of the norm that people are fucking <laughs> walking around, knocking on doors, f- trying to find places, or f- trying to find a, dif- a different apartment or whatever. Stephen opens the door, and there's a woman standing there who tells him that she believes she has crashed into his car and need to use the phone. Patricia, at this point, is like, in the other room, I think the kitchen, when she hears a huge crash. Two men have now entered the apartment. The woman was named Angela Atwood. The men were Dennis DeFries, who is a lifetime criminal, and Bill Harris, who is kind of a criminal as well and an ex-Vietnam vet. Dennis began screaming, where's the safe, when Stephen hands him his wallet, saying that it was all that they had, and he constantly keeps saying, take whatever you want, take whatever you want, to Dennis. At that point, Dennis hits him on the head with a homemade sap, which is a piece of lead that's covered with leather, and knocks Stephen unconscious. Angela tells Patricia to shut up and no one would get hurt, and then drags her into the front of the apartment by Stephen, where she ties her up and places a racquetball in her mouth as a gag. Now, at this point, the neighbor, whose name is Stephen Swinega, notices the commotion and he pokes his head in the door. DeFreeze quickly knocks him down and ties him up before hitting him on the head with a weapon, which knocks him out. Steven at that point manages to get up and runs out of the apartment, leaving Patricia tied up. (gasps) He left her? He left her, Rachel. Oh my God. He ran out of the apartment and left her. Oi. Yeah. Steven Weed, you guys, stay away. (laughs) Patricia claims at that point she realizes this is more than just a robbery because they don't seem interested in money, even though they're yelling about a a safe. Like, they're not really looking for valuables or anything like that. Outside, a stolen Chevy Impala is waiting with the trunk open. The car was being driven by Camila Hall, who was described, Rachel, as a poet and a terrorist. (laughs) (laughs) Which I honestly laughed out loud when I read it because I was like, aren't they all like, 
<laughs> read this. Uh, it just made me laugh. Like that was her descriptor. In the back seat of the of the car is the owner of the car, Peter Benison, who um, was tied up and put in the back seat, covered with a blanket after they carjacked him. So he's still in the car. The person they carjacked. Now Harris drags Patricia out of her apartment wearing nothing but a bathrobe, slippers, and panties. He, uh, as he's pulling Patricia down the stairs to freeze is threatening people who are now coming out of their apartments, like firing a gun at them, like, like stay away, get back and threatening people who are coming out of their apartments. Um, so it's quite a scene at this little apartment building. Now Harris gets to the trunk with Patricia and accidentally shuts it, (laughs) which I've done before. So he needs to go to the front to get the keys from Camilla who had it running and has to like turn the, it's kind of like this hapless uh, kidnapping. At that point, Patricia is able to loosen and starts to escape. Now Harris captures her pretty quickly, throws her in the trunk. And Patricia will later say that she's literally like freezing in this trunk. She's barely dressed. She's like in this thin robe. And it was definitely then that she put together that this is happening because I'm a hearse. Like I'm being kidnapped because of my name. Now, there's three cars in total at the scene. In addition to the car being driven by Camilla with the two kidnapping victims, one is being driven by Bill's wife, Emily, and a woman named Nancy Ling Perry, who goes as Ling. This group of eight individuals who had just kidnapped Patty Hearst called themselves the Symbionese Liberation Army. Um, okay, so I just want to go briefly into setting the tone about the atmosphere in San Francisco at this time. There's a lot going on there. Obviously, we all know about the hippie, hate ashbury Like, there's just like a lot of action going on in San Francisco at this time. And there's also a more violent element going on in the city at this time as well. The Zodiac is still a threatening force in the city. Um, and in late 1973, a group of four black Muslim men called themselves who called themselves the Death Angels, eventually becoming known as Zebra Killers, began a campaign to kill white people just randomly throughout San Francisco. So they're basically going around the city. These murders are not just like shootings. They're machete hackings, torture, uh, whatever. Um, eventually resulting in 15 murders and eight attempted murders. So quite a quite a lot of bodies were, <laughs> they killed a lot of people. Um, some speculate the number of these killings were in the 70s, that they just didn't find them all. Now, so that's like, the, the that's what's going on in the city. The city is in a full-on panic about that those killings at this time um, when Patricia is kidnapped. So a lot of people speculate, like, is this related to that? Like, what the fuck is going on? Like, people are literally living in fear in San Francisco during this period. Um, and it's in that environment that the SLA is formed. They're basically a group of counterculture types who have a very incoherent leftist platform. (laughs) Like I read some of the stuff. It's really just like, Piece together from all these leftist ideologies, like as the kids say, a word salad. Like you recognize all the terms and phrases, but nothing makes sense. Like, but it's clearly like derived from other leftist kind of philosophies and stuff like that. They're very like anarchist, like anarchy. They're into anarchy and they're also into seeking publicity. They want to become more known and more like, you know, active or more powerful. So several members of the troop or not the troop this (laughs) SLA um were actors that's why I said troop um they came from like an acting background so a lot of a lot of their performative kind of guerrilla they do a lot of performative-esque guerrilla warfare type stuff and I'm going to get more into it later with Patty Hearst um so 
yeah, it's like that combination um, of that kind of stuff with like a leftist, um, you know, backdrop. Their legacy, um, they really don't have a legacy as far as a political group goes. Like this is their thing, <laughs> this big act that they, they fu- did. They sounds like they just like failed at this. Yeah, I mean, they have a lot more crimes that will be coming out later, but like basically they're, they have no lasting like influence. So, um, the leader was the guy, Dennis DeFreeze. Now all of them have aliases. I'm just sticking with their, their, um, whatever birth certificate names. Cause it's too confusing to use all these double names. Um, so Dennis is the leader. He met a few of the guys while they were all serving time in Vacaville prison. And I think some of the women lived in that town too. Uh, I wasn't quite clear on that, but that's where they kind of started planning this revolutionary group. The name Symbionese is a riff on symbiosis, um, bringing together ideas and people. That was Dennis's like logic behind it. It sounds like they only brought together eight people. <laughs> well, the liberation obviously is freedom from the status quo. And then army, like you said, is kind of a stretch. <laughs> I think they had bigger hopes for recruiting. They're the Symbionese <laughs> Liberation Improv Troop. Yeah. So their symbol is a seven-headed cobra. Each um, head represents the seven principles of African heritage, according to Dennis. All of their communications and manifestos and statements end with their motto, and the venom of our seven heads will destroy the fascist insect that preys upon the life of the people. Now, I mentioned earlier that they committed several um, violent crimes before Patty, and one of those happened in the fall of 73. In the fall of 73, they assassinated Marcus Foster, who at the time was the Oakland superintendent of schools, someone Dennis considered a rival. Now, I didn't get a chance to go deep into this case but it sounds really fucked up. Like this guy was just a nice <laughs> superintendent trying to get the public schools in o- Oakland to have like better standards for the kids there. And for some reason, Dennis had a bug up his ass about this guy and was like, this is the perfect person to kill and like create a stir. Like they thought it would be this big publicity type of thing. Uh, but no, that did not go as planned because Marcus was a pretty much beloved figure in the community and everyone was fucking outraged at his senseless murder for no reason. They immediately took credit for the assassination, sending out a press, uh, press release. Um, they they claimed that their motive was a protest amongst other things, the Vietnam War, which has nothing to do with Marcus. Um, but they just put a laundry list of kind of things that they were protesting. And then they said that he was executed with cyanide bullets, which no one had ever really heard of, but it was proven correct by the medical examiner. Like when he opened up his body, the scent of the bullets had like the burnt almond yeah. scent and he like knew it right away. I guess only certain people can smell that. Bitter almonds? The bitter almond of cyanide. Like some people can smell cyanide right away yeah. and some people can't, but that guy could. This was two members who were not at the kidnapping uh, of Patty Hearst, SLA members, that were arrested for the murder. Their names were Russ Little and Joe Romero. So yeah, those two guys are arrested for the murder of this uh, Oakland superintendent. Patty had heard of this story. It was a big story in San Francisco, obviously. So when she started hearing them describe themselves as the SLA, she's like, I'm with fucking killers. Like, So that made it extra frightening for her at that point. She knew she was with people who have killed people. Um, she's taken to a hideout in Daly City, which is sort of just south. Like, is that south it's San Francisco? Just, it's, yeah, it's south San Francisco. It's just south of San Francisco. They're at this house in Daly City. Um, it's packed with an arsenal of weapons and Molotov cocktail supplies. 
all of their fucking writings and papers and constitution, like they have a constitution, of course, um, all of that stuff. So the house is just littered with all their revolutionary um, materials. It's here that they planned the kidnapping um, and at this kind of after the assassination of um, the guy, uh, Marcus Foster, they kind of wanted to have another thing to possibly get them back in the news that was like not about that. Now, ironically, it was the engagement announcement that Catherine Hurst put out that led them to you to picking wow. Patty Hurst because um, they never would have thought of it. Uh, and in it, they said that she was a student at um, UC Berkeley, and one of the ki- one of the people in the uh, SLA had like he's like, oh yeah, they have a guide, so they were able to look at this Berkeley guide and easily get her address. So it just kind of fell into their lap, like. They saw the announcement. They knew where she lived. They knew she had no security. So they looked at, when you said the Berkeley Guide, you mean There's like a college directory of everyone's addresses, basically. Maybe that doesn't exist anymore, but at the time, you could see where students lived. Like I would hope that doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> I mean, I guess it's like a Yellow Pages right. for for the campus. Yeah. So the the planning and the execution of the kidnap and kidnapping was pretty easy like uh, because of all of those details. Now Patricia is put in a closet with a dirty mattress on the floor and she's told that she's a prisoner of war and would be treated in line with the Geneva Conventions governing prisons of war. Well, things could be worse. <laughs> They're an army. It was um at this time that Dennis tells Patricia that her kidnapping was a retaliation for the arrest of Ramiro and Little who he said was were being held in a pig's prison and that she would be receiving better treatment than they were receiving. So, you know, shut the fuck up. Now, they demanded the release of the prisoners in return for releasing Patty, but that was not happening. Reagan at the time is governor, and as we all know, he's stupidly law and order, except for when it comes to pardoning, pardon, pardoning Spade Cooley. This is like I think we probably commented on, like, there's a real conservative side in California that I I think people don't realize because it's thought of as such a liberal state. But the conservatives here are, like, extra conservative. (laughs) There are some real conservative pockets in this state. Right. So all the people in charge at this time at various levels of government... Um, there's no way they're giving in to these whatever commie leftist <laughs> hippies on their demand, ransom demands. Right. Like there's no fucking way that's happening. So once the SLA realizes this, they switch gears and they um, decide to focus on a redistribution of wealth like sort of plan. They demand that Patricia's father provide food to every Californian in need, which amounts to like $70 worth of food to each person, which would be an estimated $400 million, which is $2 billion in today's money. Well, that doesn't sound like such a bad idea. It's a good idea, but here's the, the problem. Hearst is not actually as rich as people think he is, especially when it comes to having a ton of disposable cash. Like He right. doesn't just have $400 million or $2 billion in the bank. He's not like a Jeff Bezos. Uh, so at this point, we have Catherine, the Catholic, bringing in psychics to help find Patricia. Oh, my God. Uh, Randy is struggling to meet these financial demands. Like He has to like get loans. He's trying to get loans. Randy, to her dad. The dad. So they start recording videos in their driveway, which you can see online, by the way. Like Catherine is like in glasses. They're in front of their mansion giving these like press conferences about Patricia. Um so, yeah, you, you should watch them because they're really interesting. Now, um, Patty is seeing these, and she's also starting to release audio tapes. Like, the SLA is having her record tapes, and re- they release them to the press. 
These progressively get more and more critical about her parents. (laughs) She starts saying things like, tell my mom to stop wearing a black dress. I'm not dead. (laughs) Like she starts criticizing the mom. (laughs) Like it gets like, you you just know she's kind of I I kind of get it where it's like initially you're like I'm scared and then you're like what are they fucking doing <laughs> get me out of here like it's just really fun it kind of reminded me a bit of um in Silence of the Lamb yes like the senator's daughter was like a little bit more bitchy because yeah. she's like you know grew up a little more privileged she's like what the fuck <laughs> you know what I mean like she wasn't having it like right right so and also in these tapes she's like I'm fine there's reports of being mis me being mistreated and that's inaccurate but it's kind of standard kidnapping like my kidnappers are taking care of me like all of this kind of stuff right now her father manages to get a loan and he arranges um, a donation of two million dollars worth of food to the poor in the bay area he calls the operation people in need he also gets two lawyers to represent those two sla members who are in prison to like hopefully ensuring that they get fair a trial and appeals and all that kind of stuff Dennis demands more. He's like, yeah, that's a good faith effort, but uh, I wanted way more money. Um, um, On the 22nd of February that month, the distribution of the food that Randy bought is is sort of like going to be distributed in Oakland. Um, That scene descends into utter fucking chaos. 5,000 people come and lining the streets in Oakland. When the trucks arrive, they immediately start looting and opening the trucks, and it turns into a fucking riot. So they just drop the food off? Well, they're driving these huge trucks in to get to the center to distribute, but before they even get to the location, people start climbing on the trucks, opening the trucks, throwing food out and taking the food out from the truck. Oh man. Like I have no idea. I didn't get a chance to go deep into this, but it it was like a fucking mess. Like it was a huge fucking failure. People are injured, like people end up suing the city, like it turned into a whole fucking thing. So at this point the SLA is like, "Well, fuck that. You fucked up even bigger. <laughs> like you tried to do it and that fucked up. We're not releasing Patty." So back at the safe house, Patricia's captors are getting a little looser with her and especially Willie and Angela. They're like really bonding with her. They listen to her complain about her bitch mom and her (laughs) pussy boyfriend. (laughs) Patty at this point is especially pissed with Stephen Weed. She keeps saying to them that he said, take anything you want. And then he left her tied up. So that is like the thing that she cannot get past, which I absolutely get like like obviously when he said take anything he wasn't and Patricia too. No, but I would be that I would be harping on that. Wouldn't and I you? would be I would be going over that again and again in my take head. Take anything. Like I could picture saying that to them really meanly. <laughs> like you ran out on me and you said take anything you want. In addition to that, Dennis is giving Patty literature to read about the SLA's goals and philosophy and other sort of leftist philosophy books. Uh she, Patricia would later say that she was given the choice to die or join the SLA. But like a lot of things uh, in this case, there's Patty's story and then there's other people's stories and very few times do they match up. But there's also this element of, uh, which we'll kind of talk about later, how much of this is her, how much of this is Stockholm Syndrome, brainwashing, et cetera. There's a lot going on. Now on March 9th, the SLA release several audio tapes, including one from Patricia, where she said she didn't believe anyone was truly making an effort to have her released. And in fact, she wasn't um, 
worried that the SLA wanted her dead. It was the FBI who wanted her dead. Um, This is a much longer recording than normal. Uh, Dennis is thrilled with the release and he sees this as a major victory because she's now sort of going with them against the FBI. Reagan is disgusted with her. (laughs) (laughs) He is disgusted with all of these attempts to save his daughter, like the food thing, um, trying to work out paying the ransom. Like in his opinion, like you should just not do anything. So Reagan is caught on tape talking about the incident that happened in Oakland with the food distribution. And he says um, on tape, not knowing he's being recorded, too bad there wasn't an epidemic of botulism after that riot. Botulism? Yeah, meaning like the food was spoiled that they got and it would have whatever. He is such a piece of shit. Yeah. Uh, So meanwhile, back at the house... Everyone is fucking Rachel. And one, one, one report was like everyone was fucking except for the one married couple, Bill and Emily Harris. But everyone else is fucking everyone else. It's like, it's like Fleetwood Mac. Does Patty get to fuck? <laughs> well, I'm going to get into that. So obviously with fucking in those situations, it definitely makes things a little more tense. So according to Angela, Patricia has a conversation with her in which Angela asks Patty if she ever gets horny. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. That's just a funny thing to ask someone. And Patricia says, yes. Then Angela asks who she wants to fuck. And Patty says, Willie. Angela at this point goes to the group and asks for permission for Patty to fuck Willie. Whoa. Now there's a huge debate about this. Um, the women of the group, and it is primarily women, by the way, there's three guys and five women. Uh, two of them, I think, are lesbians. One might be uh, bisexual, but they're also very feminist. So three of the women are like, this is disgusting. Uh, even if she's saying she wants it, she's kidnapped. So that could seem unconsensual. <laughs> like, right. like later on, they're kind of thinking later on, this could be considered rape, even if she says she wants to because of the circumstances. They're feminists, whatever. So even though they're kind of kidnapping her, they still <laughs> want her to be treated fairly. Eventually, the other people think that she should be able to fuck Willie. So majority rules in favor of Patricia fucking Willie. Patricia will say that she was raped by Willie uh, and Dennis. So in Patricia's version of the story, it was Willie who had the vote taken because he wanted to fuck Patricia. She said that she went along with it and then she like went along with it without protesting or fighting at all and almost seeming willing. Like that's her version in her memoir. And that when Dennis wanted to fuck her, and this is her account in her memoir as well, she said she had no choice but to be equally as... Um, going along with it happily because she didn't want to look racist because she went along willingly with the white guy and not the black guy. So that's her reason why she did it willingly and happily both times. Uh, she says that in her memoir. Yes. Regardless of whether or not the 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 thing with Willie was rape, uh, they have a relationship. And obviously we know that that's possible within a relationship. That doesn't mean she's lying. Um Willie gives her a code name, Tanya. Um, That's the name of the woman who fought alongside Che Guevara. She um, becomes more and more annoyed with her parents and starts dropping hints to the group that she wants to officially join the SLA, and the group finally agrees to let her. Hearst releases a tape 
Uh, she first goes after her parents and their sham attempts to get her released. She goes after her boyfriend, Stephen Weed. Then she announces that she was given a chance to be released to a safe area, but has decided to fight along with the SLA. She announces that her new, her new name is Tanya and that she will be fighting the revolution for oppressed people. This is obviously in conflict with another statement she makes later that it was join or die. But like I said, who knows like what she was forced to say, right? Now, her parents are completely stunned and don't comment, instead going to the Mexican villa of their friend, Desi Arnaz. <laughs> oh, just go over to Desi Arnaz's house. Oh, Desi. This was like a shocking release when she declared that she was Tanya and now in the SLA. Like, right. I mean, I can't even like imagine... Like, what if Paris Hilton, <laughs> like, was some socialite that you all think is kidnapped all of a sudden is joining her as captors? And, like, in a day where not a lot's going on. Like, now we're so overwhelmed with news 24 hours a day. Nothing is a, everything's like a blip on the radar right. and gone within an hour. This was like a major news story. Like, people were following this fucking case. Like, it was crazy. The next time the public sees Patty Hearst is on April 15th, 1974, when she's recorded on surveillance uh, video wielding an M1 carbine while robbing the Sunset District branch of the Hibernia Bank in San Francisco. Another famous image of her. Iconic photo. Fucking robbing a bank all of a sudden. (laughs) Like, she identifies herself as Tanya in this bank robbery, uh... And then at some point she says to the people um, to put their heads down on the floor. Like they're all lying on the floor. She's like, put your heads down on the floor. Or I'll blow his motherfucking head off. So she gets into it. Like she's cursing and yelling at these people like, get the fuck down, uh, et cetera. It's a pretty wild, like I'm sure her parents are like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> like what? So at some point two men t- Men enter mid-robbery. Um, they are shot and wounded. They don't die. The gang makes out with $10,000. Dennis is so pleased with Patty's work during the robbery, he presents her with a gun of the bank security guard that they had stolen. That's like her little extra bonus teacher's pet reward. Now, this is a shocking image, obviously. The conservative people who were already kind of outraged at the situation with the ransom are calling her a common criminal now. Uh, But to some people on the left, this is a folk hero. Now they're wild about Patty, someone who has left all the trappings of her privileged life. She's a class traitor now to fight for the oppressed. The debate already is happening about how voluntary all of this participation is. But once again, Patty releases a tape bragging about the SLA success in robbing the bank and ending with her, her now infamous sign-off. To those people who still believe I am brainwashed or dead, I see no reason to further defend my position. I am a good soldier in the people's army. Patrio muerta, venceramos. <laughs> Sorry. That's a phrase used in the Cuban Revolution, which basically translates to something like homeland or death, we shall win. So at this point, like the kidnapping case, the FBI has not really been like doing the best job on it. Now they're super interested because it's like this uh, leftist group that they're, you know, the FBI want to always go after fucking leftist groups. So they're like really into it now that they're sort of robbing banks and sort of getting more notoriety. At this point, the SLA flee to LA. Okay. On May 16th, 1974, Bill, Emily, Harris, and um, Patty or Tanya are at Mel Sporting Goods in Inglewood, California. At the Sporting Goods, at the sporting goods store, Bill decides to shoplift. 
I don't know why someone would be fugitives and start to shop for no reason at a sporting goods store. I don't know if it was something he needed, uh, but it seems like a bad call to commit a crime while you're trying to be like low key. Look, Desi, he, <laughs> he needed that volleyball net. They were going to go to Venice after this. Seriously. So the manager is like one of those managers, like, fuck no, like he's going to stop a shoplifter. So he confronts Harris out in front of the store. He like manages to like cuff him, like a citizen's arrest type thing, like one cuff he gets on. Patty is seeing this scuffle with the manager and seeing him try to restrain uh, Bill. Um, at some Bill point, Harris, Bill Harris, okay. uh, Bill's pistol falls out of his waistband and it, uh, Hearst at this point discharges an entire magazine of a semi-automatic carbine into the overhead storefront, causing the manager to drive behind a light, like to go behind a light post. Now he at some point has tries to shoot back cause he has a gun on him. So it turns into this mini uh, shootout in front of Mel sporting goods. The manager, like I said, had staffed off, um, put on a hand- handcuff. So Harris does escape, but he has this fucking handcuff on his uh, one of his hands. Now they leave the van behind because they couldn't like get it. It was parked in front of the store. They immediately hijack one car. It doesn't work out. It like breaks down like two lights later. This is like this is what happens when you carjack in the seventies when everyone has a piece of shit car. <laughs> so the car like stops working like in two lights. Then they kidnap. They carjack another car, and for some reason they abandon that as well. I think it's because the police are on to them now. Like the police know they're in L.A., so right. they're like on high alert looking for this group of people. So the more they hijack or um, carjack, the more ruckus they're creating. Right. Um, so they try to go to a different part of town. They're walking around, and they're in a neighborhood where they see a van parked in front of a house that's for sale. They go up to the door and ask the guy inside, who is an 18-year-old named Tom Matthews, if the van is for sale and can they take it for a test drive. This kid says, yeah, you can take it for a test drive, but I have to come along. Now, this guy is a senior at a local high school. He's a first baseman. Uh, He plays baseball, so I kind of low-key like him. Um, he's like a real chill SoCal dude. Like they literally, uh, pull a gun on him in the van and he says to them, gnarly, he's basically, he's like, Hey, (laughs) I'll do whatever you want as long as I don't get shot. And I need to get back because I have a game later that (laughs) (laughs) he has like a big playoff game. He's like, I need to get back by three though. Whoa, bro. Uh, he, he had been following the case and when they introduce him to, Patty calling her Tanya, he says, Holy shit. <laughs> so he like knows he's with the SLA and with Patty Hearst, and he's like, Whoa, like, like a very like Keanu Reeves or something. Um, at some point, he takes them to Montgomery Ward where they get a tool to help Bill remove the handcuff, and he asks if he can keep the handcuff as a souvenir. <laughs> and they're like, Sure. Now, as I said, this is a huge story that the SLA are in LA. And police are trying to find the group in the van as well as where their headquarters location is. Now, this is all on the news. Like, I saw clips of them, like, staking out houses in L.A. Like, there's just a lot of footage of all of this stuff. Yeah, like, going into neighborhoods and, like, approaching houses and whatnot, like, looking for this group. Now... The group eventually do let Tom go to go to his playoff game. So that's nice of them. Uh, They give him his van and they get another, they carjack some other poor sap. (laughs) Now at this point they're, they're seeing the news. 
they're afraid to go back to the safe house. So they drive down to Anaheim because um, Emily's like, oh, I used to work in Disneyland and they have cheap motels there. I feel like they could have found one closer. But I guess Englewood in that area is not that far from Disneyland. I mean, it's like a half hour drive from my house, Disneyland. So... Yeah. So they go into this hotel across from Disneyland and they began to watch all of this shit unravel on TV. That must have been fun. It's crazy. Like looking at the footage was like, you did kind of feel like you were watching it live because it was just like local news footage or something. Like when a a car chase happens, like that kind of grainy footage. So the other SLA members um, had also left the safe house because they knew that they were coming after them. So they're looking for another safe house. They start walking around a neighborhood, like around the same area, looking for a new hideout. Um, I think it's all still in the South Central area. They find a house with an owner and they say, hey, can we hang out here for a few hours? And they're like, we'll give you $100. And she's like, sure. Now, they go into this house with this woman who has kids and they're preparing Molotov cocktails (laughs) and getting guns out. And she's like, doesn't say anything. I mean, it's the 70s. It's the 70s. People did all kinds of shit in the 70s. <laughs> Everyone in the neighborhood knows that the SLA is at her house. Like, it's that kind of neighborhood. They're like, hey, I think the SLA is over at Christine's house. <laughs> and people are, like, stopping by and looking hey. in and, like, whatever. <laughs> like, whatever. So uh, the grandmother of the ch- children who are there hears this, and she's like, I'm coming to get my grandchildren out of this dangerous situation. She gets her grandchildren, and she calls the police. Aw, party. Party's (laughs) over, man. Hey, Grandma. Thanks. Okay, Boomer. Uh, So (laughs) (laughs) the standoff begins at this house. SWAT teams arrive. At some point, they um, nothing. They they seems like it seems like nothing's going on inside. Like they're not hearing anything. Kind of like the Brenda Spencer like case. At some point, they throw tear gas in, and a massive gun battle begins. Uh, including like grenades. Like it is a massive gun battle in a residential neighborhood in Holy South Central shit. LA. Okay. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I've had a really stressful year with work and family stuff, and I know I'm not alone when I say I tend to push that stress down in order to get what I need done, done, and that only makes things worse. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. In the past, therapy has helped me navigate many situations from helping me to set boundaries to just becoming the best version of myself. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. I love that it's entirely online, so it's convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com HCS today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P 
com/hcs. I'm the queen of starting a free trial offer and forgetting to cancel it, oftentimes being charged for months for something I'm not even using. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. With Rocket Money, I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. It's definitely saved me money, and now I can use that money to waste on things I do want. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. That's rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. At some point, the house catches on fire from so much of the um, gunfire and grenades. The only person to come out when the fire starts is the owner, Christine Johnson, the woman who rented the space to them. And she is so drunk that she had been sleeping during the whole gun battle. (laughs) I'm sorry. She only woke up when her bed was on fire. Like Rachel. Look, I love Christine. Where is Christine today? I have no idea. Christine. But that was just like, I just picture her being like, what's going on? If anybody knows Christine and she's still alive, tell her to come on the pod. I mean, that is an unbelievable, that's drunk. <laughs> <laughs> like waking up with your bed on fire. And you know what? You She's probably had her bed on fire before and it's like, shit, <laughs> like a cigarette or something. Right. And like. It's it always sort of able to put it out, but this time, no. So she walks out drunk, and they're like, hey, get over here. <laughs> now, by the end of this whole ordeal, the house collapses from the fire, and the six members of the SLA inside are dead. <gasps> no one knows at this point whether or not Patty is one of the victims. And these bodies are burnt, like... They're not easily identifiable. Um, This whole thing, by the way, is happening on live TV, like the car chase of all car chases. Now, the L.A. coroner at the time is Thomas Noguchi, who we've talked about before. He identifies the bodies as Dennis, Willie, Mismon, Ling, Angela, and Camilla. So the only three members left now are Patty, um, Emily, and Bill. So they basically had all hidden under the floor waiting for the fire to burn out. And Noguchi said in all of his years, he had never seen conduct like this in the face of flames. Like they literally burned themselves to death, basically, and like somehow withstood. Like, I think it's like common that you you can't help but run away from fire. Like that's why people sometimes jump out of buildings and whatever. Like, so they somehow stayed in the fire and burned to death. They didn't even try to escape. No. They just tried to hide under the floorboards. Just like a crazy... Under the floor. It said under the floor, but I don't know what that... Maybe there was like a crawl space underneath. It's just a wild choice. Um, But as I said, no one at this point... Uh, so they now that we know it's not Patricia, like her family's literally watching us on the news. Like, oh, our daughter just... Yeah. yeah. Uh, But no one knew where she was. Now, 
In June, she releases another tape talking about the murder of her comrades and blaming the fascist pig media for a, for presenting a biased version of events. She does like a long tribute to all of her fallen comrades. Um, she like does a sort of bit about each one of them talking about, you know, Willie is the gentlest, most beautiful man I've ever known. He taught me the truth. Just like giving them sort of these eulogies uh, and telling the people that um, I died in that fire on 54th Street, but out of the ashes I was reborn. I know what I have to do. So she's continuing down this. So this is just a tape that she's released. She's releasing another tape. But we yeah. don't know where she is yet. No. Now, at this point, they are back in the Bay Area, uh, and they hook up with a woman named Kathy Solia, who was an SLA member uh, now as well. She is an old friend of Angela Atwood's. So... I think they met at like a memorial in Berkeley for Angela Atwood, like the people who died, the SLA members. They basically hide out for like the rest of the year all over the country. Patty begins writing a book about like her experience, like making audio recordings, and that starts sort of freaking people out. They're kind of falling apart at this point because they're sort of fugitives and they stop trusting each other. They eventually make their way back to California in the Sacramento area, and they start planning another bank robbery to get money in February of 1975. They, the bank robbery actually happens in April of 1975. They rob the Crocker National Bank in Carmichael, California, which is outside of Sacramento. A woman named Myrna Opsfall, who is at the bank making a deposit, is shot dead by Emily Harris. They end up getting $15,000, but needless to say, this is a fucking huge disaster for them because this woman was killed. She's a prominent like doctor's wife, just like an innocent old lady who just was at the bank. So people are fucking outraged that she was killed. And like they're like, shit, we did this for 15 grand. <laughs> like, right. You know what I mean? Not that a life is worth more, you know, obviously, but it was like such a little amount of money, and now they're fucking screwed. They flee back to San Francisco. This group is just now really dominated by this woman, Kathy Salia, who, I don't know if anyone remembers this, but she was actually a fugitive for 23 years. She was under the name Sarah Jane Olson, and like in the early 2000s, she, they found her. Like This leftist radical who had done all these bombings in San Francisco had been living as a housewife in Minnesota, and so that was Kathy Salia. So she goes on to have this whole other thing after this kidnapping uh, situation with Patty Hearst. Now the police are really looking, especially for um, Bill and Emily. There's a fracture in the group where Bill and Emily kind of go off on their own and the other women like go on their own thing. Patricia at this point is having an affair with Kathy's brother, Steve. Uh, and like the FBI get a tip's get a tip on where to find Bill and Emily Harris. They're really after Emily at this point because she killed the woman. Um, they show up to arrest them and are kind of disappointed that Patty isn't there. And almost by accident, they go to check on another nearby apartment for something. And that's where Ka uh, Patty is. The FBI burst in and find Patty, who quickly identifies herself as Patty Hearst. Um, they finally have her a year and a half after her kidnapping. Wow. So she actually wets her pants when they burst in, like that's how fucking tense the situation is. And they like let her change whatever before taking her into custody. She's questioned during booking. She says her occupation is an urban gorilla. And she asked her attorney to relay the following message. Tell everybody that I'm smiling, that I feel free and strong. And I send my greetings and love to all the sisters and brothers out there. That sounds like a Don Davenport. <laughs> Doesn't it? 
I want you to tell everyone that I'm in jail smiling. And I'm, <laughs> and I'm thriving, ladies I, and gentlemen. I couldn't be happier. <laughs> I love it. That is like such a hilarious mood. Like I, I get that mood for sure. Despite what Patty says, she's actually not doing well, like physically. She is down to 87 pounds. <gasps> she's emaciated. She is described by a doctor who examines her as low IQ, low effect zombie. Um, her IQ was measured at 112, where it had been previously at 130. So there was some kind of cognitive, like, deadening or something was going on there that was maybe a sign of trauma. There were huge gaps in her memory. Re- regarding her pre-Tanya life. She was smoking heavily and had nightmares. Now, obviously, without a mental illness or other uh, factors, a person is considered fully responsible for any criminal acts that they commit. Um, unless there, Another option would be if they're under a duress, like if someone is threatening them, their life, do this or I'll kill you, whatever, that kind of thing. Now, Patty didn't have any of that, But for her to secure an acquittal on the grounds of having been brainwashed was something that had never been done before. Like, no one had ever used that as a sort of reason for being not guilty. Her first lawyer, a man named Terrence Hallinan, who was a big-time lawyer. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. that's my family friend. So that was her original lawyer. Like, that was the Hearst family lawyer. Terrence, shout out to Emily, his uh, niece who listens to the show, and she's a one of my oldest friends. Right. So she had like a top guy. This yeah. is not some like, you know, someone who was assigned to her yeah. or whatever. Her family paid for the best. Now he, he was advising her to stop talking to these psychiatrists. He wanted to um, defend her based on involuntary intoxication, like that the SLA had given her drugs that affected her judgment and recollection. He did not believe a brainwashing defense would work. Um he was eventually replaced by attorney F. Lee Bailey. He was definitely down with the brainwashing defense. Like We've he talked was, about him before. He, yeah, he's another big... I mean, yeah, he was in the um, Sam Shepard. Yep. And like a few others we did. And also in the OJ. Like, yeah. So he's just one of those fucking lawyers. So he um, does want to take this brainwashing defense. Um, it, it's called kind of like a defense of coercion or duress. Um, basically like... Stockholm syndrome or being kidnapped, you're under this duress and you're brainwashed to survive kind of thing. And at this point, the public knew about Stockholm syndrome, right? That term had yeah, been coined already. I think so, but I don't, I don't know. When was that shit? When did that shit happen? Was that like the what 60s? Is it? Yeah. It I happened like, in Stockholm. I don't even remember. Uh, like, duh, it happened in Stockholm, Rachel. Don't ask any more questions, okay? <laughs> <laughs> don't you remember Stockholm? Stockholm. <laughs> What that? What happened? I know what happened in Stockholm, and I know- <laughs> maybe they trick named it though, and it actually happened in Paris. <laughs> um, I don't honestly, gaslight me. I, I don't know. I feel like I know, but I can't remember. Like I've heard it before. I'm just wondering if the yeah. public like knew like think, if that was. Like I think a- brainwashing is like a new concept. Like that right. aspect of it, I don't think is a familiar. We're more familiar because all the cults have happened right since this period. But I don't. I'm, although the Manson thing had happened, so I think it was kind of in was the collective unconscious burgeoning. or whatever. Yeah. So um, yeah. Plus, so, in the seventies, a lot of parents were worried about their kids going to cults. Yeah, and then there was also the the fear of like psychedelic drugs too. Yeah. I think. Yeah. So yeah. So he 
he sends her to um, a psychiatrist named Lewis West, um, and he's sort of a brainwashing expert, uh, according to him. Although I'm sure it's one of those things where it's like he just knows the most, <laughs> and a lot of that science is probably bunk now. But uh, he um, also is her advocate once she is in prison um, to get released, like to get a commuted sentence. So he does believe that she is brainwashed. Now, in her memoir, Every Secret Thing, that came out in 1982, Patricia says, I spent 15 hours going over my SLA experiences with um, a Yale University psychiatrist Lift named Robert J. Lifton, who was the author of several books on coercive persuasion and thought reform. He pronounced me a classic case, which meant I met all the psychological criteria of a coerced person of war. If I had reacted differently, they, that would have been suspect, he said. Uh, so he said everything she did was in line with someone who was trying to save their life in a stressful whatever situation. After being arrested, some weeks, like a few weeks after being arrested, she fully repudiates her allegiance to the SLA. Now she's in full on, like, I need to fucking not get put away in prison at this point. Now, she's arraigned for the bank robbery in Hibernia. That was the first one that she's on camera, like that one. Yeah. That's what she's going on trial for. That trial starts January 15th, 1976. The judge is a man named Judge Oliver Carter, and he's kind of a stickler. He's not very favorable to anything Patty wants to have happen. He rules against um, the tapes, the tapes and the written statements, all of the things that she basically published during that, that year and a half. He says that those are all admissible. Um, that those statements were voluntary, so they can be admitted into court. Um, he does not allow expert testimony um, that says that those statements in writing were not wholly composed by Hearst. Like he doesn't allow any experts con- contradicting that. He permits the prosecution to introduce statements and actions Hearst made long after the robbery as evidence of her state of mind at the robbery. He also allows into evidence a recording made by jail authorities of a friend's visit with Hearst in which she uses profanities and speaks of her radical and feminist beliefs. Um, And he also doesn't allow any of the tapes that the psychiatrists who interviewed Hearst, like the things she's saying on those tapes to be heard by the jury. So it's like very unfavorable rulings to all the uh, things that she wants to have admitted. Now, some people describe him as sort of being bored uh, during the trial. The judge? Yeah. <laughs> that he was resting his eyes and doing things like that. Ethley Bailey is like one of those attorneys who's had like numerous successes, but a lot of failures as well. Like he's kind of an erratic lawyer, which pays off sometimes when you take those risks. And then other times they can not pay off, right? So he actually has Hearst testify on stand, which a lot of people think was a huge fucking mistake. She does not come off well on stand. It could be her situation that she was just still sort of like coming out of this awful situation. She's like lethargic and not together. She seems drugged. Some people say she is drugged, like they're drugging her in the prison. There's all this kind of stuff um, happening. But she basically is testifying that she feels like she had to do everything or they were going to kill her. Um, Other psychologists come for the prosecution and say that she was just a rebel in search of a cause. They're, They're basically like, it's a poor little rich girl who was bored with her life. Like that's like the sort of take that they're, they're saying they describe her as amoral. Um, they accuse her of being a hoe. Like they're like, they go into all the sex she had with Wolf and, um, I'm sorry, Willie and Dennis. 
Uh, they even bring in um, previous sexual history into the trial, like showing, like, see this woman. Like it's a fucks pattern. all the time. I mean, we know we've talked about yeah. this kind of gross shit before. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't matter. Um, like I said, she does say she's raped and she says she was raped to this day. Now, Emily, they're pissed at her, uh, by the way. Emily and Bill. <laughs> Emily and Bill, because they think she's like a traitor now. You know what I mean? At some point, they like say she's lying about the rape and she's lying. Like, so they're also going after her for being a liar. Like, they don't believe her either. They're like, she's a willing participant in all of this stuff. Emily even gives a magazine interview from jail alleging that, um, Patricia had kept a trinket given to her by by Willie, um, and that that said to her that it was a romantic relationship and not a rape. And they used that in the trial. Um, it was like a a monkey, like a pre-Columbian, like monkey little charm sculpture type thing. Uh, and the prosecutors bring that up in the trial, um, saying that this also proves that she's a liar. It's also wild, like that they're bringing things like that happened in L.A. into this trial when it's purely about this case, the bank robbery, right? But usually, and, uh, yeah, usually you, it's more focused. Usually, that's not like admissible from the other because it's cases, prejudicial, right? right? Uh, so another thing they bring in is that she is outside in the van while they're in the the sporting goods store, and she had the perfect opportunity to escape. Uh, so the jury finds that to be like, well, why did she stay if right. she was, uh, she had a chance to escape if she really wanted to. The trial ends, they're definitely doing a lot of fucking conservative things. Like it's a bunch of angry feminists. Um, you know, they don't believe her. She's a fucking liar. Bailey has his closing statement in which he says, but simple applications of the rules I think will yield one decent result. And that is there's not anything close to proof beyond a reasonable doubt that Patty Hearst wanted to be a bank robber. What you know, and you know, in your hearts to be true is beyond dispute. There was talk about her dying and she wanted to survive in uh, March 20th, 1976 Hearst is convicted of bank robbery using a firearm during the commission of a felony. She was given the maximum sentence of 35 years imprisonment pending a reduction at the final sentencing, um, which was coming at a later date. 48 hours after she's convicted, I thought this fact was wild. Ethley Bailey has a document sent to Patricia in her holding cell that's an agreement for her not to publish a book for 18 months as he has a book deal about the trial ready to go. That's rude. <laughs> I feel like that's rude. It's not only rude, but that seems like a breach of ethical something or other. Yeah. I'm not like an expert on ethics, <laughs> but that seems like illegal for an attorney to do, like to have a book deal already in I place. I mean, that's like, what I was going to say. Like, that seems like highly unethical. And then highly bitchy to be like, don't publish your book. Well, that's what I said. Yeah. It's rude. It's rude and unethical. <laughs> it's all of the things. Now, she does eventually... Um, get her sentence sort of reduced. So she's not going to be going away for 35 years. Her sentence is reduced to seven years, uh, which is still a sort pretty... of reduced. That's reduced a lot. <laughs> yeah. It's still a pretty long prison time. I but don't from wanna, 35 yeah. years. That's, that's more. Maybe than... that was like the maximum she could get for the crime, but it wasn't the official, like then the judge makes his decision. Right. Now, she's in prison. It's not going well for her. She suffers a collapsed lung in prison and has numerous medical problems, like almost starting immediately. Um, this prevented her from appearing to testify against the Harrises. Like, the Harrises are on trial, and she isn't brought in to testify against them because of all these medical uh, stuff. 
things happening. Um, she is at some point put in solitary confinement for security reasons, and she's appealing her um, sent, you know, her conviction. So she is granted bail, waiting for appeal in November of 1976 on the condition that she is protected by bond. So her dad puts down a hefty amount of money, and he also has to hire dozens of bodyguards at this point to protect her. Now. She is given probation for the sporting goods store charge, which she pleaded no contest to. Um, And then another California attorney general says about her, like, this is like, I don't quite know what this guy's deal is. He says something that's sort of odd to me. He thinks the devil standard is for the wealthy, (laughs) that they sometimes will get a harsher sentence because of who they are. Nah. I mean, I think it can happen once in a blue moon. Once in a blue moon. That a rich person moon. is like some asshole, like whatever, let's say Martin Scarelli, and people want to stick it to him. <laughs> like, I don't care, though. <laughs> I like when those things happen. But in is- general, the, the bad sentencing ha- is not happening to rich people. No. So, yeah, that was like some other people's opinions on her. So, now, another interesting thing... Uh, her appeals all fail, by the way, and the Supreme Court declines to hear her case. Um, she, So she's back in prison. She gets special security because her safety at that point is in jeopardy. Were people beating her up? No, but something happened once where a dead rat is found on her bunk bed the day that... Um, what, like one of the days William and Harris are arraigned or something because like that. Because she ratted on them? Yeah. So they're like, people have access to her and people in the jail are maybe out to get her for these people. But who the hell knows what was happening? Now, they are eventually convicted of kidnapping the Harrises um, and ransom and all of that stuff. Uh, they each get a total of eight years in prison. Now, people are trying to get Patty Hearst out. One of the people who are trying to get her out is Representative Leo Ryan, who is collecting signatures on a petition for her to be released. While he's in the process of doing that, he's murdered at Jonestown. He's the <gasps> congressman who went to Jonestown. Oh, yeah. So he's in the process of getting her out, gathering signatures when he goes to Jonestown and gets killed, basically. He's the congressman who gets killed on the tarmac with Jackie Spire. Like, so he's going there to check it out because it's a lot of San Francisco residents who were in that uh cult. Um, at that point, actor John Wayne, uh, who speaks about the Jonestown cult deaths, pointing out that people had accepted that Jim Jones had brainwashed 900 individuals into a mass suicide, but wouldn't accept that the SLA had um, sorry, brainwashed a kidnapped teenage girl. It's kind of a good point. I mean, I hate, I hate John Wayne. But I do like, too, but it is a good point. That's a good point. So uh, at this point, President Jimmy Carter commutes her federal sentence to 22 months served, freeing her eight months before she was eligible for her per- first parole he- hearing. Now, the 1979 release is under stringent conditions, and she remains on probation um, for the sporting goods uh, plea. She recovers her full civil rights when President Bill Clinton grants her a pardon on January 20th, 2001, his last day in office. The person strongly uh, fighting against her um, pardon was a U.S. attorney from San Francisco named Robert Mueller. (laughs) I'm just amazed how many connections to this case there are. It's like, isn't that wild? He was the one like going against her to be pardoned. I didn't know he was a San Francisco attorney general. 
Wow. I mean, not that it matters, but I just I, didn't I just know cannot, that. I just think that's so funny that he was like, fuck you, Patty Hearst. <laughs> yeah, it was funny. I laughed out loud when I saw his name. Now, the Carters were actually her biggest advocates. The Carters. Yeah, Jimmy Carter and Rosalind Carter to get her pardon. I mentioned that when she was out on appeal, she had a security detail. One of the men who were on her security detail was a man named Bernard Lee Shaw. He was a policeman who worked part-time security and they had they started fucking while during that period. Oh, that's like now she that's like the bodyguard. Yeah. So she marries this guy. Uh they're married until he dies, I think, in 2010. And it's with him that she has her two daughters, Jillian and Lydia Hirsch. Shaw, the guy, the one who's married to Chris uh, Hardwick. And Lydia obviously goes on to become a very famous model. Or she's an actress, isn't she? Or is she both? I am I think she acts a little bit, but she was like a big model for a while. Yeah, for a while. She's not really any doing much anymore, right? I mean, I, I feel like she was had like this brief blip in like the 2000s. In the 2000s, yeah. she was like everywhere. Um, so Bernard uh, died in 2013. I think he had prostate cancer. Hearst becomes involved in a lot of charity type stuff, um, particularly like children with AIDS type charities. That's what it says. Hearst um, publishes the memoir. Um, she did publish that memoir I told you about, Every Secret Thing. Some of the things in that memoir actually get her in trouble. And like they want to bring, they, the authorities were almost going to bring charges against her based on things she put in the memoir. Like what? Uh, I don't know. I didn't, like I didn't, legal stuff? Yeah, like legal things. Like she admitted to crimes in her book that they didn't even know about. So they were going to charge her because <laughs> there was like the statute of limitations hadn't ended or something, but right. I don't think they ended up doing it. Yeah. And and to this day, by the way, she does still claim that she was raped by those guys. So I just want to make sure her opinion is still heard. She never goes back on that. As I said, she's in, um, she starts, John Waters obviously is a huge fan of this story and her she um, is in several of his films, in addition to Serial Mom and Pecker. She's in Crybaby, A Dirty Shame, and Cecil B. Demented. She also writes a, co-writes a book or collaborates with a writer on the novel Murder at San Simeon, which is based upon the death of Thomas H. Ince. That's did right. Did you read that book? Or uh, you saw it or something? I did not read that book, but I came across that book while I was right. researching the Thomas Ince story. So... Now her big thing is dog shows. She has a Shih Tzu named Rocket who won the toy category at Westminster um, in 2015. And at the 2017 show, her French bulldog Tuggy won best of breed. Now, in an interview I saw her daughters, she said that her daughters all prefer cats, which Patricia then went on to say, she doesn't know what she did wrong. (laughs) And it was at that moment, listeners, that I turned on her. (laughs) I will put up with everything. Don't you dare diss cats. <laughs> um, as Tubin sort of points out in his book, she's now living this rich, secluded life in Hillsborough, much like her mother, who she never wanted to be. And she is no longer this rebel. Like she's this rich woman at dog shows in Hillsborough, basically. But she's friends with John Waters. I guess. I'm curious. I didn't, I didn't see more about their relationship. They're friends. They're friends. They're hanging yes, out. Yes, they're friends. So she's like an old rich woman. So maybe he, she's a little kooky. And he lives in San Francisco, so they're not that far from each other. Oh, he does now? Yeah. Oh, or he has a that. house there. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. I mean, I know he's like a place. I'm sure he has a place in Baltimore, but I know he has a place in San Francisco. Okay. I didn't know he was up there a lot. Uh, yeah. So that's the Patty Hearst story. Wow. <laughs> that's amazing. That was a lot. 
of information. I actually did not know this a lot a, about this. Is a really long episode. Is it? Yeah, but Shit. no, but that's good because sometimes we have short ones, and I feel bad. So this so is. So I good. made it up. There was a lot of information. I, know. I didn't realize there was more than the kidnapping. When you told me you were doing this story today, I was like, oh my God, this is, we're going to be here a while. Unless, because this could have been a two parter. I know. I thought about it, but I didn't know if no, it, was it was enough. No, it was perfect. Um, it was perfect. But yeah, I didn't realize there were all those after crimes yeah. and stuff like that. It's such um, a crazy story. And I mean, wow. Yeah. So we'll have a lot of good pictures. Yeah. Because there's a lot of good pictures. I'll post them. And definitely look for the audio. Because it's it's crazy to hear. Yeah. It's just wild. And there's a lot of video, as I said. I love the ones with her parents. Like the mom is literally like the huge hairsprayed hair with the big dark sunglasses. Okay, I'm going to get those. <laughs> I, I need to get, like I'll take screenshots of those. She looks like such a rich bitch. Like, right. But yeah, anyway. Okay. Bye. Uh, bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.